Welcome to Let's Talk Governance, a podcast to support regional West Australian non-for-profit groups to lead and steer their activities with high impact, confidence and compliance. The podcast is brought to you by the Grower Group Alliance and made possible with the generous support of podcast sponsor, the CBH Group. Your host is Callista Bolton of the Grower Group Alliance and our expert guest is renowned governance instructor, Peter Fitzpatrick. The Grower Group Alliance is a WA statewide network of around 60 farmer-led grower groups that are all run with volunteer committees. Established by grower groups for grower groups almost 20 years ago, today member groups extend from Kununurra in the northwest all the way down to Esperance in the southeast. Across the network, the groups have a diverse collective membership of around 4,000 farm enterprises, operating in all sectors of the agriculture industry at all different levels of scale and purpose. Hi everyone and welcome to our Let's Talk Governance podcast. My name is Callista Bolton. I work with the Grower Group Alliance in the role of Stakeholder and Communications Manager. Let me introduce our guest governance expert, Peter Fitzpatrick, who will be delivering all the technical content for this six-episode series. Peter is a well-known West Australian governance instructor. Peter has quite the resume, but for the context of this podcast, let's focus on his governance work. Peter is a graduate of the Australian Institute of Company Directors and has an advanced diploma in company directorship. He is currently a director of six boards and chairperson of four, which are a mix of for-profit and not-for-profit organisations. Peter is currently a teaching instructor for the Australian Institute of Company Directors course and consults privately, offering governance, consulting and training workshops. Well, welcome, Peter, to episode two. Let's dive into today's content. What are we covering today? Well, there's a whole range of issues. Uh around uh, conflicts of interest, rights of directors, regulation, who, who regulates not-for-profits. And this, another important one a lot of people forget is what type of insurance do not-for-profits need to ensure that they're properly and adequately protected. So the first area I'd probably like to start with is uh, what are conflicts of interest? How do they arise uh, and how do you manage them? And that's a, a pretty fundamental question. Well, the first thing I would say is Conflicts of interest probably occur more in small uh, communities uh, on not-for-profit boards because people are involved in a whole lot of things in their in their area and in their region, and they may be on a lot of other boards like a football club or some other board that may be not directly relate to uh, to what they're doing on their particular board, but it can cross over in terms of funding and other things. So. They need to be really careful about this. So a conflict occurs when a director becomes unreliable, virtually, I think you'd say, because of a clash between personal or self-serving interest and professional duties as a director on the particular board. Uh, it occurs when a person has vested interests, such as uh, you know, financial investment in something, status, knowledge, relationships, uh, which puts into question whether their actions and their judgment and decision-making can be unbiased anymore because of that conflict. Uh, when that situation, the, the director who is involved in a conflict normally has to remove themselves from the meeting and in some cases are not even provided with the board papers because that could also uh, aggravate the conflict of interest. So they have to, to leave the meeting and, uh, and not take part in any of the decision-making. 
So I think managing the conflict is probably the critical thing. That's why at the beginning of every meeting, it's not just a, a ritual, it's actually a, a formal process where you declare conflicts of interest so that all directors know when it comes to discussion of that point that there is one or more directors who won't be able to take part in the discussion. So just to summarise, the conflicts of interest arise when personal or professional interests of a director are at odds with the best interest of the organisation. And that can occur through business relationships, financial interests, related party benefits, gift or loans, uh, and any other personal relationships such as family or, or close friends. It can even occur sometimes if there's a very strong bias where someone is uh, is known for having uh, a bias against certain things and if that bias comes through strongly at meetings, there may be a potential there for a conflict of interest uh, and that needs to be watched as well. Yes, so that's, um, I suppose in that situation, sometimes it's not always obvious but, um, you know, you generally need to rely on your intuition. If something doesn't quite feel right, then um, you need to, to, to look at, if there is a conflict and, and act accordingly. Yes. Well, the, the person needs to declare it. Yeah. The director, it's, it's, it, the, the onus is on the director who has the conflict to declare mm. it. Mm. And if they don't declare it and somebody else perceives that there's a conflict, to certainly raise it. Yeah, do you ask the question, yeah. uh, do you think you might be conflicted uh, on this one because of your position in wherever? Yeah. Quite often the chair should be onto that, but, but any director who thinks another director is somehow uh, compromised because of a conflict should raise it. To find your local grower group, head to the Grower Group Alliance website, gga.org.au. While you're there, subscribe to the GGA newsletter and be sure to stay up to date with the activities and opportunities from the 60 plus groups around WA that make up the vibrant and diverse Grower Group Alliance network. So moving on, what are the tests for responsible decision making? Well, I've got eight of those, so I might just quickly go through them. If you if you want to do a quick check on yourself to see, is this has this been a good decision? The first one, is there a conflict, obviously? If anyone's conflicted, then that decision uh, is going to be tainted in some way. The second one, do you have all the facts to make the decision? Have you been provided with all of the information necessary for you to be able to say, I have looked at all of this, I've read the reports, and now I can make a decision on it. The next test is, is it in the best interest of the organisation? And that's an interesting test to, to make sometimes. Is this really in the best interest? Is it going to really give us something that we need in this organisation? Or are we doing it for show or for some other, some other reason? Is the communication to your stakeholders transparent? So if you're making decisions for the benefit of members, say, uh, is that decision-making transparent or are you doing things behind closed doors and hiding a away important decisions from your members? So it should be obvious to them. Otherwise, you're going to find you're going to get in strife further down the track with members either leaving the organisation or calling for special meetings to, to get the information that they're not getting. So be transparent. Is the organisation acting in a socially responsible way? Uh, there's a great deal of emphasis on this now, not only in not-for-profit but in the for-profit uh, and enlisted companies where people talk about your social licence to operate. Uh, 
So is it a socially responsible decision or is it something that is not for the benefit of the wider community or will damage the environment or something like that? Am I looking after the organisation's assets? It's a bit like saying, well, look, uh, do we have the assets to actually back this decision? We're going to buy something or we're going to merge with somebody or whatever it, uh, whatever it is. Uh, you've got to look at what assets you've got. Is it within your means to actually make this decision? And then the last one I always find a bit interesting. Would you be embarrassed if the decision-making process and the outcome appeared on the front page of a national or local newspaper? Yeah, yeah. In other words, so... Uh, are you really comfortable? We're not just trying to get away with something here. We're actually making a sensible and responsible decision. So really thinking thinking it through, that's yes. a really good question to be asking. Yes. The other one I say is what would you say if you were being cross-examination, uh, in a cross-examination by an experienced lawyer in court about it? Uh, that's another little test that's sort of a bit like the newspaper test. So uh, is it something that you, you know, you're prepared to stand by? I guess that's what it says. Excellent. I think honing in on those eight great um, sort of checkpoints there, but one in particular that jumps off the page to me is making sure that you have all of the information to make decisions. And often people don't like to ask. They feel like they're holding up the meeting. They feel like they're being overly needy or whatever, or even, you know, challenging somebody. Uh, But they need to circle back and remember their responsibilities, legal responsibilities um, as a director making decisions. So do not make decisions where you don't have all the information that you're comfortable with to go ahead. It's a great segue for the next question, actually. All right. (laughs) So, yeah, what rights do directors have? Uh, Tell us a bit about that. Well, they've got four rights. They've got rights to information, which we were just talking about, Um, the right to be heard, the right to be advised, and the right to delegate. Um, I'll just quickly cover off on those. The right to information. You have to constantly ask yourself as a director, and I do it even now with all the boards that I've been involved in, is the level of information sufficient for me to make a decision and for the board to make a decision? If not, what's needed? Are the reports from management that you're getting, is there sufficient background papers, financial reports and other things to enable you to, to make decisions and so on? Is the information timely? So if you're getting financial reports the night before a meeting and so on, you've got a right to get that information in good time for you to consider it and be prepared. Do you have such things as critical incident reporting? Are you reporting things that the board has identified? If these things occur, we need to know about it. We don't want to find out about it when it is on the front page of a paper. So I chair a transport company. So we have outlined what sort of accidents or things that occur within the workplace, we want to come straight to the board. And we've given those the title of critical incidents. So that's another type of information. You get you have the right to clear reports about strategy and how it's being implemented and risk. So uh, this thing comes to the board and enables the board to concentrate on targets and it keeps management uh, focused as well. The next one is the right to be heard. I, I got to sort of preface that by saying, Uh, One of the duties of a director is to make their contributions at board meetings relevant and also consistent with that to be as brief as possible. So the right to be heard shouldn't be, whilst it exists, shouldn't be overdone. But what it does mean is that the chair or other directors can't silence a director simply because they don't agree with what they're saying. But don't overuse it. Uh, You know, it's not parliament where people seem to be able to talk forever 
um, the, the whole business of you do have a right to be heard, but you do have a responsibility, I think, to make your contributions relevant and brief. The next one is right to be advised. Directors have rights to, to seek competent advice from qualified people when they're making decisions or even just the running of the organisation on any issue. Often they need to, to make decisions about complex issues, so the right to be advised on those I think is very strong. So you can seek independent or separate advice. You can get a second opinion, uh, but that normally needs to be agreed by the board. You can't just simply as a director go off and get a second opinion and then send the bill to the organisation. Uh, but, but quite often I will say I'm not happy with, say, a legal opinion. I'd like to get a second opinion on that. I think it's too narrow or something. So the board can then agree to get a second opinion. That's all part of the right to be advised. Uh, legal advice, technical advice, finance advice, quite often you might need us we might need to get more detailed advice or maybe a second opinion. And then the right to delegate, it's not possible to do everything. And you have to delegate. You might delegate to the executive officer or the chief executive officer. You might delegate to a board subcommittee. You might even delegate to a very experienced independent director who's been asked to do some work on something and bring it back to the board. The test for that is if you get people to, you're going to delegate to people to investigate an issue further or to deal with stuff that you don't have time to deal with at board level, you've got to delegate to somebody who's capable of accepting that responsibility. You can't delegate to somebody who doesn't have the skills to be able to accept the delegation. I think that's the, that's the underpinning part of that. By all means, delegate, because otherwise board meetings without subcommittees and that can become very protracted. Uh, they will come to you hopefully with decisions you need to make rather than you have to go through the whole process. Peter, just on the right to be informed, you mentioned you know people receiving their board papers or committee papers the night before a meeting. In your experience, what's what's the practical time frame to receive information before a meeting? Um, th- it should be a week before, preferably, yeah. or at least a weekend intervening so you've got time to read it. Yeah. Yeah. If I get papers the night before, I will not make decisions at board meeting yeah. because you're fully compromised yep. and you're making decisions and you're not prepared. Owned and controlled by around 3,800 WA grain growing businesses, CBH Group is proud to be actively involved with and supportive of the communities we operate in. We do this through our Community Investment Fund, and a large part of this fund is committed to building leadership capacity in our regional communities. We support and deliver programs that build strength, resilience, knowledge, and skills for future industry leaders to work towards a sustainable and profitable grain growing industry. For more info, head to cbh.com.au forward slash scholarships. So Peter, in, in terms of regulation, who regulates not-for-profit organisations and what are the annual reporting requirements? Sure. Well, in Western Australia, and we'll probably deal with that mainly, it's the uh, Association and Corporations Act 2015. And it's actually regulated because of all these mergers of government uh, departments. Uh, it's now regulated by the Department of Mines, Industry Regulation and Safety. And tucked away in that department, there's an association's... Uh, section that looks after uh, associations and the uh, uh, incorporated associations and all of the regulation that's required. Uh, under that act, there are, it, and it's quite a comprehensive act, uh, in terms of financial reporting, uh, 
uh, within six months of the end of your financial year, you have to submit normally your finances to a, a greater or lesser degree depending on the size of the organisation. So they have a tier one organisation which is less than $250,000 revenue which would cover a lot of small not-for-profits. You have to provide a statement of your income and expenditure and your balance sheet and you have to have the accounts either reviewed or audited. That means an auditor goes through them or somebody who is a competent accountant reviews them and just writes a report. So you don't have to have the full audit uh, that you have uh, with with some of the bigger organisations. A review will suffice. If you're a Tier 2, that's between $250,000 and $1 million. You have to have uh, financial statements prepared uh, and once again, uh, they need to be either audited uh, or reviewed, but those reports need to be submitted. The auditors or the reviewers' reports need to be submitted. And if you're a tier three, which is above one million, then you have to have the full financial reports with notes and you have to have a full audit and the audit uh, report has to be submitted. Excellent. So... There are a number of things, other things in that act that uh, that people probably need to be aware of. They, you must hold your AGM within six months of the end of the financial year. Any special resolutions to amend the rules or anything else need to be forwarded to them. Uh, a special resolution has to be approved to amend the rules by 75% of the members who attend a meeting. Accounting records have to be kept in such a way that true and fair accounts of the association uh, are prepared and uh, and they meet the requirements of, in the other parts of the Act. An up-to-date members register has got to be maintained. The rules of the association, in other words, your constitution, has got to be kept up-to-date and made available to any member who wants to see it. A copy of the rules should be provided where possible to people when they join the association. And any list of uh, directors and office holders in the organisation uh, with their residential, postal, business and email address have got to be maintained and made available to the regulator and uh, to any member who wants to access that. So there's quite a bit in it yeah. and it's quite a comprehensive act. But I wouldn't get too alarmed about it. it just need, you just need to follow those sort yeah. of provisions. And in terms of providing new members a copy of the Constitution, having a link on a, on a website would suffice for that? Yes. And, yes, and um, yes, when they join yes. up, directing them to yeah, that link. that's right. You don't have to start running off yeah. paper copies, no. Um, and then also just in terms of, um, you know, things like meetings, how often frequency of meetings, that's all should, should be in their constitution, right? It, it, should, it, should, normally, it should normally be in there that yeah. uh, um, uh, as part of the that this regulation, uh, this, this particular act is uh, who meets, when they meet uh, and what the procedures are for quorums and all that sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah, in terms of a helpline, I've actually rang rang the helpline there before, so we'll we'll put that on um, the GGA website yes. for people because it's you literally can ring up and ask a technical question about um, requirements and all that sort of thing. There is another side to this that I probably didn't mention. It's if you're a large organisation or you operate across state boundaries, then you probably need to be to, to have a different type of incorporation, which is uh, incorporated as a company limited by guarantee. And sometimes if you're getting very large government grants, they might ask for that. So that means you become a company like any other company. You're governed by the corporation's law 
and your reports all go off to the Australian Securities and Investment Commission, ASIC as it's called. So uh, operating across state boundaries can sometimes cause that in a serious way. Although there is a new beast that they've just come out with which is called a registrable Australian organisation. So you can operate in one state and then apply to to be a registrable Australian organisation and operate in others. But sometimes big not-for-profits, and I'm still involved with a couple, uh, we, we are companies limited by guarantee because we operate across state boundaries. Something to be aware of if they're yes. heading heading across the border, if yep. your activities take you across and, the border. And a small not-for-profit WA, you just go under the Association yeah. and Corporations Act. So moving on um, to the area of insurance, what type of insurance protection do not-for-profits organisations need? Well, um, I'll start with the, the, the main ones and then I'll talk about some others. The first one is normally called directors and officers insurance. That's the insurance protection that you get. Sometimes it's called different names by insurers, but any any legally incorporated body should cover any claim in relation to financial loss, compensation associated with activities or any of the duties performed by the office holders. It covers you for any wrongful act. It covers for things like defamation and these sorts of things. So you need, if you're going to join a board, you need to make sure whether there is some form of director's protection provided uh, through a means of insurance. The next one that I would uh, refer to is probably public liability. Uh, Public liability is really important. If you do anything, it's sometimes called public and product liability. So if you're manufacturing anything, you can include product liability in there. And this is designed to cover uh, any liabilities to third parties or personal injury or property damage for anything that you're, any events or things that you're doing. Sometimes you need to see whether it works with volunteers, members, clients and customers, and I'll talk about another type of insurance in a minute. It, does it cover visitors or people who will come to work on your premises and those sorts of things? So uh, if a workman comes to fix your roof or something like that, are they covered under your public liability protection. The next one is volunteer insurance, which I think is a is a really uh, interesting area. And I'm not sure if you have a lot of volunteers, it's worth talking to your broker about having um, voluntary workers insurance, providing your members uh, with financial compensation for personal injury when they're undertaking an activity uh, on behalf of your organisation in like an official slipping capacity. in the canteen or, yeah. or falling over in a paddock. Uh, yeah, yep. 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 so uh, it's, it's a way of showing support for your members uh, with that type of insurance. Uh, the next one, and it sometimes this comes across uh, the public liability one, but if you're running a one-off event or you're running a lot of events, Events insurance uh, and even stallholders insurance and these sorts of things can be covered as well. If you're having a one-off event, then you just simply cover that. Even uh, if it gets called off through rain or something like that, you can have a cancellation policy uh, under this particular policy. So if you've invested, sunk some Some funds into it up Mm, front, you can maybe perhaps recoup. Yeah, so for weather events, um, uh, it it covers everything from sausage sizzles to uh, you know, festivals, charity walks, fun runs, all of those things. If you're doing a lot of that, first of all, you need, if you think you've been covered under your public liability, 
you need to check with your insurance broker to make sure that whatever you're doing, they know about. Because if you say, oh, we did a fun run, they say, well, we didn't know you were involved in that in that sort of activity, so it's not covered under your policy. So I always make sure on a not-for-profit board, I keep pretty close to my insurance broker yeah. and the board, the board should as well. Some of those policies there, they can... They do have not-for-profit packs and they can amalgamate a lot of those policies into it. But you need advice of a really competent insurance broker. And sometimes they're not always found in in, in rural areas. You may have to may have to sort of uh, – they may be limited to sort of dealing mainly with just farming matters or something like that. And the whole area of not-for-profit insurance might be something they're not overly familiar with. But you need to get the right advice and – and maintain a good close link with your insurance broker. The other one that needs to be looked at these days is probably cyber insurance. If you get uh, your organisation gets hit with a cyber attack, can you build in cyber insurance? These all things come at a price. You know, you've got to work out what you you need to cover the essential things. Um, I think cyber is getting into that space, into that realm now. And then, of course, there's all the others like fire, theft and damage, workers' compensation. Um, you can have business continuity if your place gets flooded or burnt down. They will cover the cost of moving to another location and so on. Motor vehicle insurance, all the normal ones. But the ones that I would focus on are the director's insurance, directors and officers insurance, public liability, possibly volunteer insurance if that applies, event insurance and probably cyber insurance. Excellent. Yeah. So making sure really... Um, Probably there needs to be somebody on the committee that's responsible for that. It might be the treasurer, um, it might be somebody else, but somebody needs to be across insurance, making sure that um, your committee members are protected and your volunteers are protected. And of course, anybody that might attend an event that you're um, hosting is protected. So everybody feels safe and comfortable with stepping forward and making a contribution. It would normally come under risk because um, normally you've got an inherent risk of doing something. Uh, and then, then you look at what is the residual risk? What can I do to reduce that risk? And insurance can be an answer to a lot of things in a small not-for-profit. So uh, you, if you've got a finance audit and risk committee, that's something that falls right within their, their responsibility. Is your event visible? Attract traffic to your agricultural industry event by featuring it in the GGA statewide events calendar. Circulated fortnightly, the Grower Group Alliance calendar is the most comprehensive calendar for the Western Australian agricultural industry. Featuring your event is free. Head to the Grower Group Alliance webpage to subscribe, ggA.org.au. Okay, we've got another question um, that's coming from the network and I'm actually going to phone a friend here. We're going to dial in Alan Beatty. He's the Executive Officer of the Nagar Land Enterprise Group um, and we'll just get Alan on the phone now. Good morning. Hello, Alan. How are you? Oh, a little frantic, but apart from that, uh, all okay. <laughs> so you're jet setting. Where? What plane have you just got off? Where have you landed? I've just landed in Broome. Ah, sunny Broome. Okay. Well, look, um, Alan, we've got a question. Um, I thought you'd be really perfect to help us answer. Um, question that's coming from the network. How should organisations, boards, committees engage with their local or regional Aboriginal communities? How do they know who speaks for that country? It's it's not always an easy easy thing to respond to. I think there's, there's a couple of things I'd say in relation to that. One is um, as far as making contact with 
Aboriginal organisations in your own local area. It's, it's a case of, of finding out who those local Aboriginal organisations are through your own networks and those sorts of things. There's not a definitive place you can go to to find out who those Aboriginal organisations are, etc. But certainly in pretty much all, in all areas of WA, there's, there's some form of Aboriginal organisations that exist. And I think bearing in mind with that as well is that, you know, those organisations can vary from, from health or land-related organisations or sport and rec or a whole range of different sorts of things. So is, is finding out, um, you know, the relevant ones to your particular organisation and making contact with them. And it, it's pretty much, I mean, I would say there it's like contacting any other organisation. It's making that initial contact and trying to develop that relationship with that organisation and the people in, involved with it, etc. And whether you're, you, I think it'd be positive to um, make those connections before you actually need something done so that you start to build that relationship without necessarily needing some form of level of input or whatever else in relation to that as well. Excellent, yeah. If you're dealing with and you're needing to, you've got a proposal or a project or something like that where you know you need to be engaging with your local Aboriginal community, etc. Most of them, I mean, talking in this area, probably they're, they're land-based sort of projects. So the first steps in that sort of, process would be to find out uh, whether native title has been issued or not over that particular area and that can be sourced from the, the National Native Title Tribunal at which there is an office in, in WA. So this, the process in that sort of very, very, very broadly in that, in that sort of process, that native title process is the claimants put in a claim that then goes through the various processes at the end of that claim if it's approved etc um, or through an, an Iliwa Indigenous Land Use Agreement or something along those lines, there's, there's usually some form of body called a prescribed body corporate, which which is then formed, which then is the organisation you would deal with in that particular area. So I think, you know, from that point of view, it's um, one of the things with that uh, native title claim process is there could be multiple claimants. That may mean that you'll need to speak with multiple groups as a part of that process. Whereas once the prescribed body corporate's been formed, then it's really it's more a case of you dealing with with one organisation. However, in dealing with that one organisation, there could be multiple elders and others, etc., that you need to deal with and consult as a part of that process. If it's related to an Aboriginal heritage issue, then the the Aboriginal Heritage Act comes into play, and the the um, well, was administered by the Aboriginal Affairs Department, which I think it may be called that, but it now is placed within the Department of Premier and Cabinet. And again, that can be Googled and you can find out, uh, do those relevant, you can do online searches as well in relation to, uh, is, is there any Aboriginal heritage sites within an area, etc. But it's always good to get in touch with the department to clarify that and make sure as well and, and, and make sure that you're abiding by the, the due process, etc. as a part of that, um, dealing with any, any Aboriginal heritage issues. Excellent. Oh, so that's um, really practical um, tips there, and I suppose for me the main thing is don't leave it till the last minute. <laughs> um, reach out early. Yeah, I think it's like any organisation, any any group of people you're dealing with, and organisations you're dealing with. If you build those relationships before you need actually something done, yeah. then then you've got a far better chance of getting an outcome, uh, an agreed outcome, and a positive outcome for all parties involved. And it, it is a case of of building those relationships and continuing to, to build those relationships with the, with the Aboriginal groups or organisations, whether they be a, a, a land-based group such as NLE or a prescribed body corporate if, it, if it's gone through that native title process so that um, when you're needing to have those discussions, there's already a relationship developed and a level of, uh, and all going well, a level of trust and rapport and that sort of thing in place. Yeah, excellent. 
Thank you so much, Alan. It's been very helpful and um, I'm sure that uh, the groups that um, are in this this situation um, will be able to use those that information. Thanks so much, Alan. Enjoy brewing. No problem. Thanks. Bye. Excellent. All very useful again, Peter. Thank you so much for today's insights. Thank you. My pleasure. We hope you've enjoyed the content in this episode of the Let's Talk Governance podcast. Resources around governance for grower groups, including where to connect with guest expert Peter Fitzpatrick, can be found on the Grower Group Alliance website at gga.org.au. Before we go, one final acknowledgement to our podcast sponsor, the CBH Group, who have been right behind this new way of making governance guidance really accessible to the Grower Group Alliance network and any other not-for-profit stakeholder groups tuning in.